Well, we're going to uh, look this morning at Titus chapter 3 and uh, some of the verses in that chapter. Uh, basically, I suppose 1 to 8, but uh, concentrating primarily upon verses 4 to 7. Uh, I think uh, these verses uh, are high up there on the level with what the Apostle Paul says in some of his uh, more distinguished letters, but. Uh, because it uh, describes to us really and effectively what uh, God has done for us in salvation. And what you find with the Apostle, the way in which he deals with it is that he shows to us basically that we should be living a certain kind of lifestyle that distinguishes us from the people of the world. And living out that life, it is a reflection of what God himself has done within us. And this is why the Apostle, when he starts to uh, introduce this particular theme, he tells uh, Titus here to remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing all humility to all men. This is the expectation of the Apostle when he is writing to these particular people. But he is still mindful, and it's very often with the Apostle Paul, isn't it, that he's very certain about, uh, he wants to remind people not only of what his expectations are of them, but, of course, their state and condition prior to them ever coming to salvation. And so what he does is that he reminds them of their state and condition prior to their own conversion. And there in verse 3, it's a bit like reading uh, Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And I suppose we could ask the question, why is it that the apostle wants to remind these people of where they have come from? And I would suggest to you that the reason why he wants to do that is because Unless we realize from where we've come, we can't really and fully appreciate where we are and where we are actually going. And this is what the Apostle is about to lay out before these particular people. He is about to show them what God himself has done for them, that God himself has intervened in their life, in their situation, and has changed and transformed them and brought them into this place and into this realm of salvation. And so here you have this situation that he wants to remind them that they were at one time sinful and hating one another. They were alienated and separated from God and living in such a way that they should have come under the just condemnation of God, but having experienced something of the grace and mercy and compassion of God, that God has brought them into that place of salvation. It's wonderful to be reminded, isn't it? of what God has done for us in Christ. But what you find in these particular verses is that the Apostle wants to show to them that this salvation originated and came from God. It is of divine origin. It isn't something that we ourselves have manufactured. It isn't something that we ourselves have generated and created in such a way that we ourselves merit any worth or value in the sight of God through what we have done, and we'll see that as we are going through these verses. One of the wonderful things that you find in these verses is that the Apostle Paul wants to bring out and show to us many of the various aspects of God, or what is described sometimes as the attributes or qualities that are in God. And what he wants to do is he wants to show us the kind of God that we 
have dealings with. And there's a wonderful picture that he dis- displays to us in these particular verses. There are so many descriptions here used. It's almost as if he, as it were, adds one upon another to show to us the magnitude and the greatness of God. And sometimes we don't realize the immensity of what God has done for us and who God is. And sometimes our eyes need to be opened to focus upon the very person of God, to see the qualities that belong to God. And in seeing those qualities, we can see how great and glorious this God is. We were so condescended to meet with us in our state and in our condition when we were afar off from him. We had no interest in him whatsoever. We were just like the rest of the world, but God himself has intervened. And so you find the apostle here. He says to these people, isn't it, of what God himself has done. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. In the coming of Christ, here was the manifestation of the kindness and the love of God that has been shown to us. It's actually, uh, I was talking to an owner on the way down just now, and I said there is a slightly different translation that you have in the authorized version compared with the ESV, and uh, the ESV describes it in this particular way, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. But in the... uh, New King James Version, it said, but when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. And the reason for that is that the actual translation should be towards man. Towards man. The word translated is the word that we often use about philanthropists. It's that sort of combination. Love on the one hand, a man on the other hand, and then you have this particular picture. And very often... You find this revelation of God. It's it's this love, this kindness, this compassion that God has towards a sinful people. In actual fact, when you think about it, there are various people, aren't there, who are lifted up and elevated before us as examples, aren't they, of uh, philanthropic things that they do for mankind. They do it out of altruistic motives. They, they do it for no gain to themselves or no apparent gain to themselves anyway. I remember once reading an article on Bill Gates and he was actually being criticized. And the criticism was this, that though he had made so much money, he had not donated money to various good causes, and he hadn't set up any charities or things like that. That's before he set up his charity now. But I remember reading this article, and the article was saying like this, that in the tradition of America, for those who made megabucks, as it were, towards the end of their lives, then they started distributing, giving it out for various causes, good causes, good reasons. But Bill Gates hadn't started that at that particular point in time, even though he still owned Microsoft and um, he'd had all these billions and billions of accumulated funds. And he was criticized for it. But you know, when you look at God, isn't it? You look at God and you see God as this God who is merciful and compassionate. As he goes on to say, isn't it, a little later on in verse 5, for example, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out in us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, having 
been justified by his grace. So you see, here on the one hand, you've got the kindness of God being shown, the love of God being shown, the mercy of God being shown, and also the grace of God being shown. And it's almost, as I say, he's just piling and piling one thing upon another thing in revealing to us what God is like. You know, and you can look at all the qualities that are found in God here. We could say, what you know, when Jesus came into the world, what did Jesus say? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Here I am as the manifestation of what God is. And all of these qualities, when you look through the life of Jesus, when you read the Gospels and you see him there living out his life in this world, you see all these qualities being manifested to various people who come to him in certain states and conditions, and Jesus dealing with them in these ways. Here he was, the image of the invisible God. Here he was, the manifestation of all of what God is in this world, living out this life to show to us how we should live. And so you see here that here is the way in which God has dealt with us. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, is he? But he's dealt with us according to the riches of his glory in Christ. And he's dealt with us in this particular way. I could deal with the different aspects here about what God is like, but just to think for a moment, isn't it, of you know, the mercy of God and the way in which he deals with us, isn't it? You know, what is left, you know, when you think of a person who has done something that is wrong and broken the law, perhaps, and, you know, here he is, he's in the court, and he's there standing before the judge, and it's quite evident what he's done is criminal, what he's done is wrong. And there are only two things, isn't there, that can be done there. The judge can either condemn him or the judge can show mercy upon him. And you know, when you, you stand before God, isn't it, and we stand before God, isn't it, we, and we're like that, you know, publican and sinner, isn't it, the tax collector and the, the Pharisee, you know, they, they're there, you know, in the presence of God, and there they are in the temple worshiping God, and here is this man, he's there at the back, and what is his plea to God? The only plea that he's got is that plea of mercy, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And you know, that's how we come before God, isn't it, you know? We come because we know God is kind. We come because we know He is loving. We come because we know He is merciful. He is merciful. This God who forgives our sins, this God who cleanses and washes us, you know, this God who demonstrates and manifests His grace to us that He comes to us and He embraces us in Christ. He shows what He is in the salvation that He has procured for us in Jesus Christ. And He does all of this for you and I to receive the forgiveness of sins that redemption might come to us. You see, one of the things that Paul says here, isn't it, and he wants to show this quite clearly, isn't it, that he wants us to know that it's not by works of righteousness, he says, that we are saved. It's not because of what we have done. He wants to emphasize the fact it's not like, you know, as if we have been trying and trying and trying, and God says, oh, well, you know, they've done their best. Let's give them salvation. They've attempted to do it, but they didn't reach the 100%. It's almost like those in the Olympics, isn't it? They come in second or third, but they say, oh, well, you know, they did their best. And those others who didn't even win a medal, they did their best. Let's give them all gold. 
It's not like that, is it? Their reward isn't because of what they did. But God of His infinite grace and mercy demonstrates it in saving these people not because of works of righteousness, but because of what they themselves have done, but simply because of His mercy, simply because of His grace, simply because of who He is, that He demonstrates these things, these qualities to you and I in salvation. We are justified, says the Apostle, there in verse 7, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified. We are put in that place, in that position, whereby under the law of God, now we can never, ever be condemned. Once we are in that state and in that condition where God has justified us, we are in that position whereby the law can no longer ever condemn us. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment that can ever fall upon us. Now some people have taken that to the extreme because if having been saved and my sins are forgiven and you know I'm in that state of grace and of mercy with God, my sins... Not in part, but the whole were nailed to that cross and I bear them no more. But it's, you know, when you look back and you think, oh yes, I can understand God forgiving my sins then. But can I tell you this? That God forgives my sins daily, hourly, minutely. What do you look in the forward, into the future? What do we see? That all the sins that I will ever commit I've already been forgiven in Christ. God knows my state and my condition and what I will do in my life. And even though salvation has come, and though I can still sin against God, and we can read of examples coming in the Old Testament, examples of people who were saved and obviously saved, and yet they sinned against God. But they didn't fall from grace. They didn't fall out of God's favor. They didn't come under the condemnation of God or under the condemnation of the law of God because they were justified in the sight of God. And justification means that no matter what I do, I can never, ever lose my salvation. The sad thing about that is that certain people have come to the conclusion, well, you know, if you can do that, you can live as you like. That's logical, I suppose. But what you find here is that it's not theological in the sense of what the Apostle says is there are two sides to salvation. There is one in our position before God and there's another in our condition before God. And you see, the wonderful thing here is that the Apostle Paul brings them both together. He shows us the greatness and the glory of God and the way in which he deals with us in salvation. He shows us how he justifies us. and He brings us into that realm of salvation whereby our sins have dealt with and removed from us. But then he shows to us as well what God himself does to our condition. Our state of heart and soul and mind. Our inner state, our inner place before God. That we are not as we once were. That God himself comes in a transforming way. That redemption is not merely the forgiveness of sins, but it is the restoration of the soul. And this is why he says like this, isn't it? That we are those, we're in this state now at this moment of time, he says, 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In other words, here is the activity of the God, the Spirit, working in such a way that he brings us into that realm of salvation by way of regeneration and renewal. We know what regeneration means, don't we? It means basically being born again, going through a rebirth, something that is done to us, not something that we do to ourselves. It is an inner transformation, an inner change. It's what the Scriptures described as God imparting spiritual life into a dead soul, raising that dead soul from spiritual death to spiritual life, bringing them into a relationship with God whereby once they were dead, and now they've become alive. Regeneration has taken place. The Spirit of God has come and imparted life into our dead souls. God himself has come to us. The Spirit of God has reanimated us, given us life. That's what he's done. And this is a change within our souls which is irreversible. You can never, ever be dead in sin again once the Spirit of God has given you life. Once you have been born of God's Spirit, eternal life has imparted to that soul. And from that point on, there is this ongoing transformation by God. God doesn't only justify, He sanctifies. God doesn't only give to us justification in the sense that He forgives our sin, but He deals with our sin in our very nature. And though logically, you could live as you like, theologically, it is an impossibility. It would mean that the hand of God would have to be taken off us because in that act of regeneration and renewal, the Spirit of God continues to work within us and upon us. Do you remember how Paul is writing the church in Philippi? He who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That change and that transformation is irreversible. Salvation can never, ever be lost. It's like uh, some of you might have come to the church in your car this morning, you started the engine, you got into the car, you put the ignition key in, or it's keyless now, isn't it? A lot of them are, anyway. And you start the engine, and that's like regeneration, isn't it? The imparting of life to this engine, which was dormant and dead, as it were. But then life comes. And then you start to drive the car. And you're moving from one destination to another destination. And that's what renewal is all about. We, at one particular point in time, God came to us and made us alive. And then the Spirit of God continues to work upon us and within us. And we are moving onward and we are moving forward so that that life that God has imparted to us and the, the quality of that life, which is the life of God within the soul of man, starts to manifest itself, starts to be revealed to the world at large. And the way in which it revealed is how the Apostle Paul tells us to remind us how to live our lives out in the way in which he describes here in verses 1, 2, and 8. There is the way in which we are supposed to live. Here is the manifestation of God's life within us. Here is what makes us different from the rest of the world. Here is a new humanity that God has created. 
And so the Spirit of God has worked upon us. He's moved within us. We are being changed daily. Remember the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed from day to day. This progression is something that is going on constantly. We might not even be conscious of it happening to us. But there is one thing that is sure and certain, you are not the same now as you once were when you first came to know and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have been born again of the Spirit of God. We have been changed and transformed, and we cannot be the same now as what we were then. There may be different degrees in growth and development and spiritual renewal, but there is growth and development and spiritual renewal. There is this change that is ongoing, Day after day after day. And so we see here the apostle saying to these people, look, look what God has done to you. So here we have on the one hand the Father manifesting himself in salvation, the Spirit of God here being actively working within us by regeneration. See, the idea is, isn't it, that we are being washed or we've been washed in regeneration. There's been this inner cleansing, isn't it? It's a bit like uh, when Jesus uh, wanted to wash the feet of Peter, isn't it? And Peter says, oh, no, you're never going to wash my feet. He says, if I don't wash you now, he says, you won't be clean, you know, you've had it. Oh, not just my feet, he says, but my hands, my head, everything. Why? Because Jesus has come. The washing of regeneration, the inner cleansing, Working of the power of the Spirit of God. And of course, this comes to us, doesn't it, through the person of Jesus himself. You see, this is what's sometimes described by theologians, the economy of redemption, the whole of the Trinity being involved in our salvation, the Father planning and originating it, the Son executing it, and the Spirit of God applying it. The order is somewhat changed here because it talks about the mediator later, doesn't it? And it talks about Jesus here in such a way, isn't it? When he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, when the Spirit of God was poured out, and it's the same word that is used in Acts chapter 2 and verses 32 and 33 there. And you remember when the Apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and as he is preaching, he's coming to the end and the conclusion of his sermon. And what does he want to do? He wants to show these people what has taken place at this moment of time. He wants to resolve the queries and the questions that are going on about this phenomenon that was taking place before their very eyes. And he says, he's now what? Yes, he was crucified, he's died, he's now what? Been raised from the dead and he has ascended to the Father's right hand. And what has the Father done? He has given him this promise of the Spirit, which he has now poured out. Same word, poured out. The Spirit of God has poured out. And what was happening at that moment of time was, here was a change, here was a transformation that is taking place. A new era was coming into being. The Spirit of God, the unleashing of God's power upon the world, Remember Jesus saying to his disciples, tarry here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And when Pentecost came, what did they receive? They received the power of God. The Spirit of God came down, poured out, 
Christ himself, the mediator, through whom the Spirit of God was sent. And what happened? 3,000 plus people saved under that one sermon. I wish I could preach a sermon like that. It wasn't so much the sermon, was it? Because if we were wholly reliant upon sermons, good or bad, we would be in despair. But it wasn't because of the sermon itself, but because the Spirit of God came by the power of that same Spirit, imparted those words that the apostle was preaching into the hearts and minds and souls of these individuals, whereby they were caused to cry out, isn't it? Crying out, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know, they were under that conviction. They were under that realization that they were in a wrong state with God. What shall we do? See, what had happened? God, the Spirit, had come to them, and suddenly they were made alive. And all of a sudden, they were changed, and they were transformed. And all of a sudden, this change that had been effected within them brought them to the realization of where they stood before God. And you know, when you get to that stage, isn't it, you see the sin that you've committed and the things that you've done wrong, and God opens your eyes to see His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His kindness and His love to you. Then you magnify, don't you? You magnify who God is and what God has done. You cannot help but bow in His presence and acknowledge the glory that belongs to God. But you see, this transformation that has taken place, this rebirth has made us the very children of God. Unless a man be born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But being born of the Spirit of God, there is this transformation, there is this translation from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. There is this transfer. And this is why He says here that we have become heirs, heirs of the hope of eternal life. This is what has happened to us. Isn't this where we stand at this moment of time? If I was to say to you this morning, what is your hope? You may have hopes relating to this world, but what is your final hope? Isn't your hope to be in glory, to be with Christ, to be with that church triumphant? to be with the people of God who have passed through this world, who have gone through great tribulation, who have experienced what it is to feel the opposition of the world, and have now entered into that place of glory. Isn't that our hope, the hope of eternal life, that hope that was imparted to us when the Spirit of God came to us, and He brought us to faith in Jesus, and He brought us to the hope of glory? This is what has happened. This is the change. This is the transformation. And the glory that belongs to this position is the glory of the children of God, isn't it? How often do you read in Scripture, isn't it, about regeneration? You know, we have experienced a new birth. We have become a new creation. We are a new man in Christ Jesus. We have a new life. All of these things. 
the apostle, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's, he's talking about the resurrection, isn't it? He says to us like this, that we have borne the image of the earthly, and we have to bear the image of the heavenly. What is happening to us? This transformation, this renewal that's going on. We are being changed into the very image of Christ. The apostle says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed in yourself. And how are we being changed like that? We are being changed to be more and more like Jesus. God's eternal plan and purpose was to bring us that we will be conformed to His very image. And all the qualities that are mentioned here shall be installed within us implanted deep in our souls that we too will reflect what Jesus was like. And the very lives that we live should be a reflector of who Jesus is. What a wonderful thing it is, isn't it? To know that we have undergone this change, this experience, this is proof positive, isn't it? That we are justified in the sight of God we are no longer condemned. But this glorious hope and prospect that is ever before us, my friend, what a joy it is to know where you stand in the sight of God, to know that we are those who are destined to be with Him. Changed, new creation in Christ Jesus, the beginning of what God has planned eternally, that the whole of creation shall be changed, but we have already started and instigated that, and it's been instigated in our souls. Preparation for that new creation, and Christ shall come to take us to be with Himself forevermore.